Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Freedom of Species. I'm Kate Gracie, and today I'm sharing a presentation from JC Reese. JC is the co founder and research director of the Sentience Institute in the US, and he recently did an international speaking tour. This presentation I'm going to share with you was given at the University of Tasmania, and he speaks directly to the topic of his book, The End of Animal Farming. That is the timeline of how he expects humanity will phase out animal farming. Enjoy. Thanks to everyone for organizing this and for coming out. Um, I've actually never been to Australia, um, much less Tasmania, so this is very exciting for me. Um, the talks I'm giving are, are pretty varied. Um, you know, Australia and New Zealand are kind of a unique environment when it comes to, to global economies, especially the focus on animal agriculture. Um, the talks I'll be giving in China, for example, are going to be very different and, and more catered to that audience, a pretty big focus on tech. Um, so, so I hope I can speak to some of the, the particular issues of, of this corner of the world. Um, but of course, there are also many local advocates, um, some of whom are here right now. I was just in New Zealand talking to SAFE and uh, some other animal groups, which are, which are all very exciting. So if you have any local questions that I can't answer, um, they'll be around. Um, but I'm very happy to provide the kind of global perspective and speak to particularly what's going on in the United States, um, not just because that's where I'm from, but because it's been both the epicenter of the bad things that have happened, you know, the advent of factory farming, and then also the epicenter of, of both the farmed animal movement generally, but then also the uh, food tech that's been going around that I'll talk about more later. Um, so I do work with the Sentience Institute, and um, my research right now is, is particularly on farmed animal advocacy. So broadly, we're looking at every way you can expand humanity's moral circle, whether that's, um, we did a big research report on the British anti-slavery movement, looking at how kind of that uh, established um, rights and established legal personhood and, and was, was the frontier of kind of considering uh, some sentient beings, you know, humans in particular, some of them as persons instead of things and kind of breaking through that uh, legal wall that had never, well, largely never yet been um, broken through in world history. Um, but currently, the big frontier of the moral circle, the big moral question we're facing as a society is, in my opinion, um, the use of animals for food. So there are over 100 billion animals um, living on farms right now, definitely over 100 billion on factory farms. Um, in the United States, over 99% of farmed animals live on factory farms. Uh, the number is at least over 90% globally, though we don't have the best data for many countries. Um, so that's kind of what motivated me to focus on this particular issue. I've been researching it for about four or five years, and uh, this November is, is when this book will come out that kind of represents the culmination of the research. Uh, the talk I give today will be different from the book. Um, it'll be along the same lines, but I don't want to repeat the content. Um, so today what I'm going to do is kind of outline a few of the issues of animal agriculture, which I don't talk about at all in the book. The book is very much solution-oriented and about social change and what we can do going forward. And today I'm also going to provide a, a little roadmap, uh, kind of timelines of specifically when we'll get to the end of factory farming and the end of animal farming, um, which the book is, is a bit more general and, and qualitative than that. So first, uh, a big part of my work is, is this philosophy called effective altruism. Uh, so this sprung up 
around maybe 2010, 2013, um, as a group of uh, charity advocates, but also a group of academics and philosophers, all focus on this question of how we can do the most good. Um, the advocates weren't satisfied with just uh, feeling good about ourselves and, and helping you know, whoever we could, uh, however we could. Um, you know, all charity is, is, is good charity, but instead they wanted to uh, have the most impact possible. So think about, for example, distant populations. You know, could we be helping people overseas more cost-effectively? Uh, thinking about distinct populations, so thinking about other species, thinking about um, people who might not be uh, similar to us, and even thinking about future beings. So, you know, for example, with climate change, we have these discussions about our grandchildren, and really that might be a very effective way to do good instead of just focusing on the people who are around today. Um, so this is a big motivator for my work, and, and as I go through kind of the roadmap to the end of animal farming, it's from this particular perspective. I want to talk a bit about where we are now. Um, so animal farming and, and factory farming in particular really took off around the turn of, of the century, you know, around 1900. So basically in the United States, uh, we had an increasingly urbanized population that we were trying to feed with a very old-fashioned food system. Um, and that was pretty unsustainable. It led to food shortages. Um, in 1910, there was even a national meat boycott uh, in the United States that, that got a lot of national media attention that we can kind of see in the historical record. Um, and then as the World Wars hit, uh, particularly World War I and all the food issues that came with that, um, because everyone was so hungry for, for not just food, but animal products in particular, uh, we saw a national priority, both with industry and with the, the United States government, of producing more food more cheaply. Um, and when that came to the use of animals, we saw uh, the growth of farms like this. So this is, this is not quite the, the very old-fashioned, you know, pasture-based, um, a few farms being um, kind of sustenance agriculture for the family and the local community, but it's not quite the huge factory farms that we see today. It's more of a transition period. Um, the first factory farm, if you could point to it, would probably be in 1923 with Miss Wilmer Steele's uh, broiler house in Delaware in the United States. So what she did was she had around 500 hens, but then she started adopting kind of the industrialized uh, procedures that were used um, more widely in the production of consumer goods. So having you know, more animals in a smaller space, um, specializing them. So she was growing uh, hens particularly for their meat. Um, previously, we had had the same chickens who were both providing our eggs and providing uh, chicken meat. But she was developing kind of a breed that was just optimized for growing as much muscle as possible and not, not wasting time, so to speak, on uh, producing eggs. So you saw this kind of genetic division of labor like what you would see at a car factory where you know, some hens were specialized in producing meat, you know, dairy cows were specialized in producing milk, egg-laying hens uh, specialized in producing eggs. Uh, you know, the modern egg-laying hen produces over 300 eggs a year whereas the natural rate of red jungle fowl, the, the natural ancestor of chickens, uh, was around 15 a year. Uh, so really this dramatic change that has led to a ton of issues. So the first of those issues um, maybe is represented by this image. It's not an alien world, it's not science fiction, it's not photoshopped, instead it's a feedlot. So those small dots that you can see and these little uh, rectangles are cows. Um, in the middle, that is actually just the manure lagoon. Um, so that's just where the, 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 the feces and the other waste is being pumped from all of these cows around here. And you've seen a big uh, algae bloom. So I was just in Christchurch, and they're actually having a similar issue where some of the local lakes uh, have signs around them saying, you know, don't swim, don't even let your dog swim in this lake uh, because it's been so polluted by, by the dairy industry around there. Um, but this is really kind of, there are many blots like this uh, uh, across the U.S. landscape. 
and it's led to a lot of um, health issues. So, so not just for the animals themselves, but for the local communities. You've seen increased incidences of asthma, potentially some cancers. Um, it's really a bad uh, system all around. And then, of course, it affects um, you know, the quality of the land and the ecosystems, uh, tourism, recreation, things like that. You, of course, have the animal welfare cost. You know, as an effective altruist, I want to find uh, the aspect that, that is of the most moral relevance. And we t when you talk about over 100 billion animals living on factory farms, even if you don't care about individual animals that much, let's say you really care about humans a lot more, um, from a quantitative perspective, from a maximization of good perspective, this seems like a, an issue that deserves a lot of our attention, a lot of our, uh, what effective altruists would cause, call cause prioritization. Um, so these are gestation crates. Um, these are mother pigs who are uh, confined in cages so small they can't even turn around. Um, this happens for, for though all sorts of animals. So fish, are, uh, they often die by being suffocated or crushed when they're uh, pulled out of the water. Um, like I said, the hens are laying so many eggs that it's really damaging their reproductive systems. Um, the hens that you actually saw on the first slide uh, were my two chickens in the, who live with me in New York. Um, and they are on hormonal implants. So these are very similar to uh, birth control in humans uh, that tone down their reproductive system and uh, keep them from laying so many eggs. Um, not just because it sucks to lay a, a jumbo-sized egg every day. Um, you know, I've, I've heard women say that it seems similar to something between uh, being on your period and, and, and having childbirth every day. Uh, but it also just causes a lot of long-term health issues. So you have many hens with uh, stuck eggs, for example. If you've ever been to even a, a pasture-raised farm, you'll see many uh, hens waddling around um, because they just have uh, either a partial egg or a full egg stuck inside them. Uh, extremely painful. Um, they can even die from things like their uh, reproductive tract uh, coming out of their body because of all the stress. Uh, and then, of course, in the longer term, cancers like, like ovarian cancer are very hazardous. Um, so the hens that I take care of at home who are rescued from a factory farm in California um, are on implants and, and don't have to worry about that. So that's very nice. <clears throat> Finally, we have health issues. Uh, so many people advocate for plant-based foods for nutrition reasons. Um, I'm not as convinced as, uh, of those things, like the harm of saturated fat. Uh, but regardless, from a public health perspective, there's huge evidence that uh, animal farming is exacerbating things like antibiotic resistance. Um, so in the United States, which again is what we, where we have the best data, uh, over 80% of antibiotics are fed to farmed animals, many of which are the same exact ones we're using on humans. Uh, and in fact, a lot of meat has antibiotic-resistant bacteria on it as it's coming out of the meat processing facility. Um, this is, is a huge long-term concern for, for public health um, in the United States and around the world, um, like this, this article saying that it's a, a literal global threat to public health. Um, and this is leading up a lot of people to prioritize um, the food system and, and think about things like animal agriculture, who were previously never involved, who, who weren't focused on the environment, weren't focused on animal welfare, um, but just kind of self-interest has led them to, to, to join the fight and to speak out against these problems. So we've, we've had awareness of these for maybe the past uh, 20, 30 years. Um, it's grown a lot. In 2006, we saw a United Nations report called Livestock's Long Shadow, uh, which... Um, gave some really striking figures, um, potentially of dubious accuracy, but, but at least in the ballpark of, uh, you know, uh, animal agriculture being responsible for definitely more greenhouse gas emissions than the entire transportation sector, for example. Um, but a variety of other kind of uh, jarring statistics um, showing this elephant in the room of animal agriculture that previously the environmental movement had really ignored. 
Um, so you've sort of just seen a lot of action taken. And then, of course, the animal rights movement has been around, uh, particularly for animals used in research uh, since the 80s, and they've started working on fa uh, factory farming. So I want to talk a bit about what we've done so far. Uh, the biggest thing has been this, uh, go vegan activism. So asking people uh, one by one to adopt a plant-based diet or to go vegetarian, uh, or more recently to go vegetarian. Um, and this individual lifestyle change. Sometimes this is protests, you know, like the, the very memorable uh, PETA ones, often involving um, scantily clad women uh, to catch people's attention, uh, but also things like passing out leaflets on the street, things like uh, running online ads. So on uh, when Facebook ads become really, became really popular and very cost effective, you saw people trying to get people to sign up uh, for, you know, vegetarian starter guides. Uh, you saw people showing uh, animal agriculture footage, so from undercover investigations um, that showed them the harms. And again, this big ask was for individual diet change. And we've had some success with this. We've had maybe um, in the United States um, previously 0% of the population be, uh, be vegan in maybe the 1980s, 1% uh, be vegetarian. We don't really have very good data for this. And then it's up now to maybe around 3% um, self-reported vegan and maybe upwards of 10% self-reported vegetarian. So, so a really solid minority of the population. Of course, a lot of people who say that they're vegan or vegetarian um, actually eat you know, seafood, for example, and, and just um, like to, to, to say moral um, have moral identities, even if they're not following through. Uh, but still, I think, I think we've established a lot with this. Uh, we've also had these, so kind of beans and vegetables mushed together in something that looks like a uh, meat patty, um, something you can serve as the center of the plate, something that, um, you know, in the United States, Tofurky has really taken the approach of not wanting uh, vegetarians to feel left out at Thanksgiving and giving them a, a, a tofu-based, uh, you know, turkey substitute um, that they can eat and enjoy. And lots of these are really tasty. Lots of them are very healthy and good for you. Um, I eat a lot of these. You know, I actually went vegan myself when I started doing research in this area. Um, and I, I really think these are great. Um, however, I think they are limited. You never mistake these for animal flesh. Um, for the people who, who just really want meat, dairy, and eggs in their diet, I don't think these are going to work out. So along those lines, I want to talk about where we're going. So you might have seen this image or know about these burgers. This is the Impossible Burger in particular. Um, actually, just today, uh, they got um, a no-objections letter, basically approval um, from the Food and Drug Administration in the United States um, for one of their key ingredients to make this kind of magical plant-based burger. Um, so what it is is, is really a combination of uh, plant proteins and plant fats um, and, and other ingredients that create uh, the taste, the texture, and the mouthfeel of meat. Uh, so many omnivores will eat this and have no idea that it's uh, made from plants. Um, I wouldn't say it's entirely indistinguishable yet, though we should keep in mind that there's a, a wide, an extremely wide variation between the taste of animal products. So just two different beef burgers you know, made from cows can vary extremely. Um, so we, we shouldn't be too worried if this tastes a bit different than any given um, animal-based burger. Um, but it's really amazing what they've been able to do. Uh, these companies have been working on this from maybe something like 2009. Um, and just in the past few years, they've been releasing products and getting a ton of publicity, um, getting traction in places like um, Australia. So, so Lord of the Fries, kind of a vegan uh, fast food, almost junk food chain, uh, now carries the Beyond Burger, which is a similar product to this one. Um, Beyond Burger was actually made by this guy. So his name's Ethan Brown. He founded Beyond Meat in 2009, uh, basically the first of these companies, um, and originally produced some, some chicken strips. It's actually the interesting thing about chicken is it's, uh, it's white meat, so it doesn't have the 
vasculature and, and complexity that red meat does, so it's actually easier, um, which is fortunate for those of us who are focused on animal welfare because uh, it's also the most costly. You know, think about how many chickens it takes to create one meal versus how many cows it takes to provide you know a huge number of meals. It's maybe around uh, one to two hundred or something. Uh, in fact, over over ninety percent of animals raised for meat are either uh, chickens or fish. Um, so anyway, um, he's been doing a lot of really exciting work. He got interested in this space uh, as an environmentalist. He spent about 10 years working for a fuel cell company, um, but he had always been interested in animal ethics. His, his father was actually a philosopher who was posing all of these questions of you know, concepts like speciesism, you know, why should you eat um, a uh, cow if you wouldn't eat a dog or a pig you know, if you wouldn't eat uh, a cat, um, and making these, these comparisons that had Ethan thinking a lot about the ethics. Um, but then when he invested in a, a, a few vegetarian restaurants, he got thinking about the technology and the fact that you could really uh, potentially produce something that is meat from the culinary standpoint. So a combination of you know, fats, proteins, waters, and trace minerals, I'm sorry, water and trace minerals, uh, that is, is, is what we think of as meat from the culinary experience. This could be really powerful for, for an ethics-driven movement because really a huge part of the population is not going to change based on ethics. This is true in any movement. You have to push them along through some other means, whether that's technology, whether that's you know, policy change, uh, or any of those things. So to share a few uh, quotes about this space, this technology, uh, so this quote is from Tom Hayes, who's the CEO of Tyson Foods. Tyson is the world's second largest meat processor. Uh, he said plant protein is growing faster than animal protein. For us, we want to be where the consumer is. A really strong statement. And in fact, Tyson has invested in some of these companies already, uh, which to me is as someone who's who's both a researcher in the space but also is very excited about these foods and what they can do, um, this is where the big change happens. It's not um, you know, these new companies cropping up and just kind of creating a new uh, mega food company. Instead, it's the existing companies um, switching. You know, just, just a meat processor like Tyson, instead of processing meat that's coming from, from uh, animal agriculture, can process meats that's coming from uh, plant agriculture. And uh, they can have the same distribution channels, the same sort of branding, um, and it's a much easier switch than kind of building an entire industry from scratch. Additionally, Bill Gates, you know, a tech pioneer, said it was the future of food. He actually said this pretty early on, I think around 2012 or 2013, um, when he was trying those, those initial products. So not even that fancy Impossible Burger that we have today, uh, but kind of the first of these. He already knew that it was the future of food. Uh, finally, the most powerful quote from Richard Branson, I believe that in 30 years or so, we will no longer need to kill any animals, and that all meat will either be clean or plant-based, taste the same, and also be much healthier for everyone. Uh, so a really, really short timeline. Um, I'm going to share my timeline in, in, in most of this presentation, um, and it's not quite as optimistic as, as Richard Branson, uh, but regardless, this is so exciting to see somebody who's, who's a business magnate um, getting so on board with this, and he's also made investments in this space. Um, so you might have noticed that he mentioned something called clean meat. Uh, what is that? So that's um, basically something like a, a brewing beer. But instead of brewing beer, which is what this image is, um, you're brewing animal cells. So you take a small number of cells um, from a living animal. You could do this with a feather. You could do it with a Q-tip swab of saliva. You could do it with an actual biopsy of, of muscle cells. Um, taking those cells and putting them in something like this, so a big cultivator where we do you know, cellular uh, food processing, um, and then mix it with the things it needs to grow, so sugar, uh, growth factors. Growth factors are what kind of tells cells what to do. 
Um, and all of this mixes together, and, and as, that, uh, as those cells replicate, you get tissue, you get muscle, you get fat, you get the connective tissue, you could even get bone. Um, you can get all the things we think of as, as meat and animal agriculture products. And, and that's hugely exciting because, uh, you know, I'm from rural Texas originally, and you have a lot of people, it's a very meat culture. You have a lot of people who, who love barbecue, who love animal products, and they're going to see those plant products. And even if you tell them it tastes the same, it's, it's the same nutritionally, all that, they'll say, no, you know, I want my meat, I want my beef. Um, and this way, you can give it, give it to them. So really, as, as effective altruists, uh, I think innovation like this is, is the most powerful tool we have. To go a bit more into that technology, so that, that cultivator would kind of be doing a uh, liquid process. So uh, it would be mixing those cells together um, along with, with um, nutrients and everything to create uh, individual bits of tissue, uh, something like ground beef or like what you could make a chicken nugget out of. Um, but if you want to make the sort of 3D structure of, of, of well, yeah, let's say bone um, or, or a T-bone steak would be maybe the holy grail of, of clean meat, um, you would need something like this, this lattice. So you need scaffolding. You need something for the cells to grow around, like the extracellular matrix that they'll grow around inside an animal's body. Um, you'll, of course, need, need that sugar, need the food that I was talking about. Uh, this is particularly important because um, it'll be a driver for plant agriculture, so we're going to need more people producing um, the, the sugar beets or sugar cane or whatever makes sense for the local climate uh, to feed these cells in the clean meat facilities. And then, of course, you'll have those big cultivators that kind of capture the whole process. Um, and those cultivators could get really small, such that, similarly to how you brew beer in your own home, you could have uh, a mini meat brewery going on in your backyard. You could have uh, craft beer or artisan beer in that sense. Really exciting. Uh, this can also get really sophisticated and be a big part of the efficiency of this process. So, for example, you could take the uh, growth factors out once, once the cells are done growing, take any excess, and feed it into the next batch um, and really have a sustainable, self-contained process. Um, you know, very different than most animal farming where you're creating so much waste. Uh, you might have heard some of the statistics like if we feed uh, one calorie to an, an, uh, an animal, one calorie of plant-based food, uh, or sorry, I should say, when we feed around 10 calories of plant-based food to an animal, we get around one calorie in return. Um, it varies a lot based on which animal you're talking about, whether it's uh, dairy or eggs, but it's a very wasteful process. If you think about all the things animals are doing, uh, you know, like maintaining their body heat, um, growing hair and, and, and teeth and bones and beaks, and all of that, uh, having a, a nervous system, having an immune system, having an intestinal system. You know, a nervous system is kind of what leads to those animal welfare issues we were talking about. Um, an intestinal uh, system is what leads to the a lot of the nutrition, or sorry, the public health issues. You know, the contamination, the foodborne illness like E. coli or Salmonella. Um, so if you're taking all those things out of the process, it's not only more ethical, but it's just using the energy so much more efficiently. Um, and you're really just getting the product that you want. Uh, you're getting the meat, you're getting the dairy, you're getting the eggs. And you, you might raise an objection of, well, what about the other things that animals create that we might want? You know, like leather from, from uh, their skin that we actually do get a lot of use out of. Well, you could just create those. You could have, uh, you know, skin cells uh, creating leather. Or right now what's going on is they're creating just the collagen. Collagen is kind of the protein that makes up uh, leather. It also makes up, you know, fingernails and, and things like that. Um, and they're just producing that, um, you know, in, in the same sort of process uh, to create the product we want without all the waste. So uh, to take one example of, of a company in this field, 
uh, we have Google. So Google uh, has done a lot of things. It actually tried to buy Impossible Foods uh, pretty early on, Impossible Foods and their burgers, before they were even producing them. Uh, they just had the technology in mind. They just had the aspirations. Um, and Impossible said, no, you know, we're, we're, we're going to big places. A lot of these companies are very ethically driven. Um, they're not just focused on uh, making money. They're instead founded by people who are environmentalists or animal welfare advocates um, and also have a business background, so kind of see the intersection of those two things. It's a really exciting space when you have people like Google on board. Um, this guy, who's, uh, his name's Eric Schmidt. Um, he's the uh, chairman of Alphabet, which is Google's uh, parent company. Um, when he was asked to list in 2016 uh, the biggest trends he saw in the tech industry, uh, his number one uh, answer was nerds over cattle and this food technology we've been talking about. Um, additionally, the co-founder of Google, Sergey Brin, uh, has, he was actually the, the funder of the world's first uh, cultured or clean hamburger that came out in 2013, which is kind of a prototype, that, that a proof of concept um, that got all these companies started, that got investors on board, that got scientists excited about it. Um, and even Google internally, so with, with their cafeterias, um, they've been doing things like selling um, New Wave Foods shrimp, so New Wave is, is making shrimp with algae. That's where a lot of the flavor of, of, of not just shrimp, but seafood in general comes from. So if you kind of, again, skip the shrimp in the process and just take the algae and turn it into food, um, you can get a lot of the same culinary aspects that we want in a much more sustainable process. Um, I would say also that uh, Google... Um, well, no, I shouldn't go to... Google's been involved a lot, and they're doing a lot of really exciting work in their space, and they're kind of a microcosm. It's similar to Tyson Foods, um, which is uh, investing in a lot of these new companies, but it has also been the target of a lot of you know, animal welfare campaigns from the movement. And it's really amazing to see these companies kind of morph and evolve with the times. Um, uh, additionally, you might have heard of a company called WeWork, um, which is, is uh, they provide kind of co-working spaces, I think in the U.S., maybe internationally. Um, and they recently announced that they were actually banning uh, meat, at least from land animals, um, for their uh, entire company. So, so kind of employees can no longer um, buy, uh, you know, you know uh, get reimbursements for, for travel meals or they don't have it in their cafeterias and that sort of thing. So really seeing the whole tech industry get on board, it's, it's very exciting. So with the rest of the presentation, I want to go through uh, my roadmap. Um, and this is really just an, an estimate for the stages that we'll go through. Um, I've given a very rough timeline. So right now we're in the foundation stage, which I think will basically last until 2025. Revolution from 2025 to 2050, that's kind of the high point of the movement. Uh, stigmatization, kind of a lot of follow through in the movement that goes all the way until 2100. Um, so one thing to keep in mind here is this perspective of effective altruism, and in particular that we need to estimate even in the face of uncertainty. Uh, so I'm going to throw out a lot of numbers for kind of specifically when things are going to happen, um, but keep in mind that I'm doing this for the purposes of discussion and for the purposes of uh, making our best guesses rather than saying that I'm particularly confident. Uh, it's extremely hard to predict anything uh, this far in advance. It, it hasn't been done very well really in history, so I don't want to claim that I found some secret to be able to do it. Uh, but instead, um, you know, if we're wanting to build a better food system as a society, we need to be thinking in the long term. We need to be thinking about not just you know, how do we reduce the suffering of animals and farms a bit right now, how do we re maybe reform factory farming, um, but instead how do we really build a better food system in the long run. Additionally, from an EA perspective, this is a realistic timeline, not the ideal one. Uh, so I'm saying animal farming will end by 2100. That's my best guess. Um, I would like it to be much sooner. I, I would 
Uh, I think a lot of vegans, you know, think that the revolution will kind of come in the next five, 10, 15 years, and, and that's great. Uh, I think if we re work really hard at it, we could get a lot of these technologies going very quickly. Um, you know, with, with technologies in general and their capacity for social change, we've seen that um, in 30 years, uh, the U.S. went from having um, more, um, well, I should say that in 30 years from the uh, first cars to, to be mass-produced, um, the U.S. had more cars than horses. Um, more recently, it took 20 years for the majority of U.S. households to have personal computers. Um, and then even more recently, it took five years for the majority of, of uh, U.S. residents to have smartphones. Um, so with technology, we could get some really fast timelines. Um, but we have to keep in mind that with social change in general, it's taken a very long amount of time to get rights, to get personhood for humans. You know, we've had movements for people of color and for women for, for hundreds of years, and we still haven't fully succeeded in those, even though we've ended some institutions like, like uh, slavery or like the disenfranchisement of women. Uh, but even those movements themselves took decades, uh, if not centuries. So anyway, I've tried to strike a balance, and it's, it's just my best guess. So to get started with stage one, the foundation, where we are now, a big part of what we're doing is welfare reforms. So things like cage-free campaigns that are trying to end the worst abuses, uh, the worst environmental impacts, the worst um, health consequences like antibiotic usage um, in factory farming. Uh, this is important even if you're just thinking about kind of plant-based and animal-free food uh, because it's building the movement in a really important way. So, so as these animal welfare groups are, 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 are creating reforms, they're uh, getting in touch with companies. They're getting contacts with those companies. Um, they're getting contacts with journalists who cover uh, the undercover investigations they've done of the cruelty. Uh, they're getting donors who are helping them build their staff. Uh, they're getting staff who are becoming talented at doing all the things you need for campaigning, like um, uh, reaching out to journalists, like writing, um, like strategically kind of uh, campaigning against companies, you know, figuring out how you can get a multinational corporation to change its policies with just, you know, it's really a handful of company doing things like sparking a global movement for, for cage-free eggs, for example. Um, this is really powerful for, for laying the foundation for the movement. We also have technological development that we've discussed. Um, I think prior to 2025, we won't have much uh, widespread adoption. Um, instead, most of the focus is going to be getting a few early consumers to purchase things, getting investors excited, media excited, and kind of fueling the behind-the-scenes uh, technological you know, food science and biology work. Um, it won't be until 2025 when we start bringing prices down of these products when we really start to see widespread adoption. Additionally, right now we have um, initial regulation discussions. So you might have heard uh, some recent discussions about what to call what, I, what I've called clean meat. You know, I, I, I call that process clean meat because I'm really focused on the ethics of it. Uh, you know, well, what, what matters to me is not exactly how it's being produced, but instead what's the impact for humans, what's the impact for animals. Um, so that's why I say clean meat in a homage to kind of clean energy. Um, but some people want it to be called, uh, you know, lab-grown meat or Franken-meat or test-tube meat. Uh, you know, if you're somebody who's currently heavily invested in animal agriculture, um, you want to kind of um, point to how weird it is or point to how new it is or point to some of the more negative aspects and get those negative perceptions. Of course, if you're a supporter like me, you want to get the positive perceptions going. Um, and then even the, a lot of the neutral terms have issues. So, like, people will call it cultured meat because it's, it's, it's happening in cell cultures. Um, but cultured also refers to fermentation. And if we tar start talking about cultured milk because you can use a similar process to make uh, milk products, cultured milk is yogurt. 
Um, that doesn't really make a lot of sense to, to, to start referring to you know, liquid, drinkable milk as cultured milk. So anyway, there are a lot of discussions right now, and it's, it's really important that we get them right. It's important that we spend a lot of time on them. You know, some people say, no, let's just focus on the technology. It doesn't matter what we call it. Uh, but those things lead to huge changes in public perception. Uh, we've done some research, both at, um, kind of at Sentience Institute and elsewhere, uh, looking at how people react to different phrasings. Um, and you can get um, 20 points uh, kind of variation or more in the percentage of people willing to, to, to try or, or interested in switching to these new products. So a really important foundation. We're also getting some other seeds of the public conversation around animal agriculture. Um, so you might have noticed earlier that I, I used a slide with, with PETA. Uh, PETA does something uh, called using gimmicks. So they seek attention at the cost of reputation. Um, often this is done through the use of, of scantily clad women, kind of a sex sells approach. Um, it's done through laughable, silly publicity stunts. Uh, cute cartoonish animal costumes, a really heavy focus on celebrities and trends and kind of making veganism out to be the latest thing that millennials and young people are doing. Um, I want us to avoid all of this. Um, I want us to avoid it pretty strongly. When I talk to advocates on the field, you know, a lot of my work is, is not just studying historical social movements and kind of broadly expanding humanity's moral circle, but talking to people today about the biggest challenges they're facing and trying to improve the food system. So many of them say, like, oh, everyone I talk to asks, oh, you're not PETA, are you? Or like, oh, I, I've heard this one really bad thing that animal rights people did. You know, those, those pictures of naked women you put up in Times Square. Or uh, how many of you have heard of the recent U.S. discussions of uh, immigrant children being separated from their parents? Is that well known here? Um, so PETA, of course, um, put up a billboard um, showing a dairy cow uh, being separated from her calf um, near the, near the uh, southern border of the United States, um, as kind of making a, an implication at least of, you know, if you care about um, children being separated from their families, you should oppose the dairy industry. Um, and of course, you know, any separation of, of children from their mothers, whether that's uh, cows or dogs or cats or humans or anyone, um, is sad. Um, but those sort of antagonistic, for lack of a better term, uh, tactics are really, really dangerous. They have um, set precedent for animal rights as a lesser social justice movement. You know, when we have discourse between the movements of, you know, feminists talking to anti-racism activists, talking to, uh, you know, classism advocates and, and disability advocates and everyone, kind of everyone thinks of animal rights as this kind of um, awkward uh, little, I don't know, sibling in the room who's, who's um, pushing against some of kind of the way other people are discussing things, who's burning bridges, um, and this has led to a lot of the, the negative perception we have right now as a movement. So when I talk to, for example, the uh, people at these tech companies, they're having to focus so much on the sustainability and the health aspects because the animal aspects have gotten such a negative reputation because of PETA and others who have, who have um, used those off-putting gimmicks. Um, so this is one of the biggest priorities I have and, and, and try to convince advocates of right now at this stage of the movement. Finally, for the foundation, I want to discuss trigger events. So these are hugely important in a variety of movements. Um, they capture the public consciousness. They get us all thinking collectively about a particular social issue. Uh, you had the book Eating Animals that came out that got a lot of people thinking about vegetarianism, questioning whether they should be eating animals in the 2000s and 2010s even today. Uh, you've had the undercover investigations. You know, when you're, let's say, passing out one of those leaflets on the street asking someone to uh, change their diet, you can say, like, oh, here's a leaflet about uh, going vegetarian. They'll say, oh, okay, I've, I've, I've considered that. And you can say, like, oh, well, have you heard of the undercover investigations that have happened? They're like, oh, yeah, I, I've seen those on TV. And you've immediately, 
you know, went five minutes forward in the conversation, and, and you've got to establish that, okay, they know cruelty exists in animal agriculture. So you can say, oh, this leaflet explains, you know, how that's actually rampant across the entire industry, how there are also other similar issues like environmental and, and health costs, um, and that can be hugely powerful. So we've seen this in, in other movements, like with environmentalism, you've had uh, the Exxon Valdez oil spill. You know, these don't just have to be caused by advocates, but um, you can refer to kind of the big oil spills that have happened when you want to talk about the dangers of, of, of the fossil fuel industry. Um, you can refer to something like, uh, or you could have referred to Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, you know, a big book that, that showed not so much the animal welfare cost of, of, of meat processing, um, but the health costs and, and the really gross things that were happening to our food and getting in, in our food in the early 1900s. Um, hugely powerful, create a ton of rhetorical ammunition for social movements. So stage two, uh, the revolution. This is the most exciting time in the movement. So I just spent a lot of time singing the praises of welfare reforms. I'll continue to do so, um, but I do believe they will fail. And I believe that's an important part of our movement. Um, so at this point, you're going to see uh, entire countries and organizations attempting bans on factory farming. So you're actually already seeing this in Switzerland. Um, a, a, a kind of sister group of ours, Sentience Politics, is trying to get a, a ban on the entire practice of factory farming. Of course, that's huge. I mean, Switzerland has probably uh, the highest animal welfare um, food system in the world. It's debatable between that and, and Austria. Um, but still, I think that uh, if they do succeed in even passing that, when you see it try to be implemented, uh, you'll see the industry pushing back. You'll see prices being in danger of increasing two or threefold. You know, when we think about kind of the highest uh, welfare products on the market right now, they often cost, you know, several times more than, than uh, factory farm products. And uh, while many of the people in this room might be willing to pay that sort of cost, uh, the general population certainly isn't, and, and the global population can't even afford that. Um, so I think you will see, see these struggle to be implemented for kind of just logistics, financial, uh, challenging reasons. I think that when we're exploiting animals for our own gain, uh, you'll always have an incentive to, to cut corners, and you won't be able to achieve a, a really humane food system. So like I said, we, uh, Sentience Institute, early in our history, uh, wrote a very long report on the anti-slavery movement. And actually a really important part of that movement was the efforts to reform uh, slavery and to kind of do what, what many of the moderates in that movement were talking about, of saying, oh, well, we can you know, go to the Spanish system and, and have slaves have uh, you know, days off on Sunday or this sort of thing. Um, and they tried to implement these, and, and they failed, uh, by and large. At least they, they failed to the extent that nobody could, could justifiably say that, that slavery became a humane system. And at that point, you saw a big shift in the both advocate rhetoric, so the movement's rhetoric itself and the internal dynamics, and also the public rhetoric of, of, of the United Kingdom at the time. Um, so you saw people seeing the industry as incorrigible, seeing it as inherently wrong and inherently inhumane, because it inevitably led to, to so much suffering and so much oppression. Um, so I think you could see similar things, and you have seen similar things with other movements. Um, and this is kind of a general tactic of reform, attempt it, uh, see it fail, and then abolish the unethical industry. You also see climate change urgency happening in this time. Uh, this isn't really something caused by advocates, and it's not a good thing, um, but it's something that will drive a lot of the impetus for ending animal farming. Uh, like I said, it's, it's the uh, environmental elephant in the room, and you're going to see more and more people be desperate for environmental so solutions. Um, so you'll see 
uh, that spur the movement onwards, and you'll see more of a self-interest. You know, I think even if we're not able to, to muster the, the moral motivation as a movement to, to push forward against uh, animal agriculture and factory farming, you'll see us do it just out of self-interest because it's, again, so wasteful when it comes to resources and the environment. So this stage, you're going to see what's called early adopters and an early majority. So you might have seen this uh, curve before called diffusion of innovations. Um, so we're very early on in this in, in our movement right now. This is kind of how you could you could track all social and technological uh, adoption. Uh, so if you're you know vegan right now, you're definitely an innovator. Uh, if you're adopting a plant-based diet or eating the Impossible Burger, you're still probably an early adopter. Um, and we're very different from from the later parts of the population. So around this time, you'll get the early majority, which will have a bit of that moral motivation uh, like people in this room do, but will be more motivated by, oh, well, now it's not so expensive, or, oh, now all of my friends are starting to eat it. And you'll start to see this become really powerful momentum for the movement, um, but you won't get to the late majority and the laggards at this stage. At this point, you're going to see really radical mainstream discussions. So, for example, I mentioned uh, speciesism, or you can think of animal rights and animal personhood. These kind of very powerful and radical uh, philosophical and ethical concepts um, that seem compelling when you look at the logical arguments, but right now when people are eating animals three times a day, it's very hard to be thinking critically and, and thinking rationally about the ethics of using them because we have such, you know, every one of us who's eating animals has such a vested self-interest in, in, in that entire industry. Or if we're using animals in other ways, um, we, we have an incentive to not adopt kind of more radical, more progressive, uh, more moral ideologies. But as people are shifting away from that and you have kind of a reduction in cognitive dissonance that's beginning, uh, getting its first traction at this stage, you'll see more, you know, uh, I don't know New York Times op-eds on things like actually getting animal personhood for animals used for food, but especially you know, for chimpanzees or for, for other animals who we think about animal rights for. Uh, the other big strategic point I want to make, which is important at this stage but also earlier on, um, is institutional rhetoric. So by this I mean um, a focus on uh, governments, companies, nonprofits, and on society as a whole instead of focusing on individual diet change. So I talked about how for most of our movement we've wanted people to go vegan, go vegetarian, go reducitarian, um, change their own diet, change their own lifestyle. Um, really an individual, one-by-one, one linear approach. Um, and that can do a lot of good. Uh, you know, I think it's an important part of social change, um, but I think we need to shift towards uh, changing entire yeah, corporations and governments. So you've seen this with welfare reforms. Uh, you, know, you didn't see a lot of success by getting people one-by-one one to start eating cage-free eggs. In the United States, I know that it never really got over 10% of the population making those consumer choices. But when you ask people, you know, do you want your grocery store to start serving only cage-free eggs or, or to no longer confine animals in, in battery cages, um, you could get over 60, over 70% support for these institutional changes. People are just far more willing to, to take this approach. Um, so some of the, the, the big specific pieces of evidence, uh, first is historical precedent. Um, so I, talk, I talked about um, anti-slavery, but another movement we can learn a lot from is environmentalism. So in environmentalism, they've had something called uh, green consumerism, which is kind of a heavy focus by both businesses but also individual advocates on getting people to buy more eco-friendly light bulbs, getting people to recycle, these sorts of things. Uh, currently, the big thing is not using plastic straws. 
um, which these things do, do good. I, I'm not trying to knock them, but um, they haven't been successful in creating really huge changes in society. In fact, I think virtually no movement uh, has succeeded with the kind of heavy individual focus that we see in the animal movement. Um, so currently we're seeing environmentalists shift, shift towards things like, I don't know, divesting from fossil fuels or shift towards uh, global environmental policy. And I, of course, apologize for the United States um, and our role in holding that back. Um, but you're seeing a lot of progress and you're starting to see a lot of shift in that movement. And I think we should make the same shift in our own movement. Uh, you also see institutional change evoke moral outrage. So when you tell somebody, uh, I'm part of this movement to end factory farming or to end animal farming, uh, they can feel really uh, motivated and, and, and pissed off and, and angry at kind of what's being done to animals because they see it as a, a collective change we need to make towards a common goal. Whereas if you tell somebody, oh, hey, uh, have you seen this cruel factory farming? Um, it's being caused by your own diet. Uh, you should actually go vegan. Uh, you do not get moral outrage. You get defensiveness. You get people saying every, every response you could think of, like plants have feelings or lions eat meat, why can't I? Um, oh, I need protein. Oh, I'm an athlete, so I can't go vegan. Though they'll pull up any reason that they can think of uh, because you framed it in a way that's inhibiting their ability to kind of feel outraged and feel part of a movement and feel like they need to make moral change. Instead, they're feeling like they have to justify their own diet, um, and instead, institutional change can kind of bypass that entirely. Along similar lines, it applies social pressure. So, so humans are extremely social creatures. This is something we see in all sorts of uh, behavioral psychology research. So when you're trying to get you know, kids to stop using drugs, when you're trying to get uh, households to, to uh, do some of that green consumerism, um, you get a lot more change by applying social pressure. You get a lot more change by saying, hey, look at what all the other households in your community are doing. You're lagging behind. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the funnest experiments in this space was uh, putting smiley faces on people's doors uh, based on whether, you know, smiling if they were above average for their community or frowning if they were below average for their community. And this was, you know, hugely effective. And, and oftentimes in kind of behavioral psychology and advocacy, we struggle to actually get people to change their, their behaviors. We can get a lot of change through social pressure approaches and institutional change, again, because it's that framing of collective action, of how people can join an entire movement, you know, be part of the right side of history, the wave of the future and all of that. You can get a ton of excitement and motivation for change. So at this point, uh, like I said, it's the high point of our movement. We'll get meteries. Uh, we don't have a picture of a, uh, you know, at scale clean meat brewery that I can show you, uh, but we have uh, beer breweries that are, I think, pretty close to what kind of the, the food of the future will look like. Um, my, my best guess is that by 2050, or really by what I give in the book is an 80% uh, prediction interval, ignore that if it doesn't make sense, uh, but a, a, an interval of 2038 to 2068, when I think the majority of uh, meat, dairy, and eggs in high-income countries will be animal-free. Um, so we'll be being produced with this new technology and we'll be driven by that social change that we've discussed. So really the rest of our movement is, is I think, easier. We've, we've kind of passed the big challenges. So when we're creating change after 2050, uh, we're going to get the late majority who's driven by momentum. So it's driven by things like labeling. You know, we saw this with cigarettes, getting, getting some really negative, scary labeling of the health consequences of smoking uh, being put on the package because you had people on board. You had governments on board, so they were able to do that, and lots of people are going to be scared off. 
Um, additionally, like I said, most of the population will just eat what's in front of them. They'll just eat what's, what's convenient, what's tasty, and what's cheap. So if, for example, you can get an uh, airline who often have uh, pretty strong commitments to environmentalism because they're getting so much flack for their uh, carbon footprint, if you can get them to switch their default option from a, you know, an animal-based burger to a plant-based burger, uh, this is already happening with Air New Zealand, that is, is starting to, uh, well, it's, it's just the vegetarian option right now, but have the Impossible Burger on their airline, um, you're going to get people who, unless they want to take the time and take the effort to say, oh, no, I really want an animal-based beef burger, um, they'll just get served a vegetarian option. And, and, and many people will be entirely satisfied with that, especially if it's one of these you know, Impossible Burgers, because they're just eating what's in front of them. Uh, you will, I would say the hardest part of, of what's going on at, at this time of the movement will be globalization. Like I said, most of the change will have happened in high-income countries where you get the beginnings of that technology, the beginnings of that social change. Um, but when you start having, for example, interactions between great powers, um, so let's say China, which really has the power to um, spur along clean meat technology on, all on its own, you know, if the government decided to, to make it a priority to, to um, lead this new industry, they could take off... Um, take off the industry entirely on their own. Um, and then if the United States, which you know, has a lot of animal agriculture and is, is exporting a fair bit to, to China, says, oh no, like, we really want you to keep consuming uh, animal agriculture, or if Brazil starts pressuring uh, countries to, to keep buying from them because they haven't yet made the switch, we could see some tension. We, we could actually see some trade wars and some potential for large-scale conflict that I think is dangerous. Um, this is one of the reasons I'm, I'm really focused uh, on the seeds of the public conversation right now because a lot of them have to do with kind of cross-cultural interactions. Uh, so an, another mistake of, of the animal movement, and I don't mean to too, be too much of a downer, we've done a lot of things right, uh, has been a, a, a real antagonism towards uh, East Asian cultures, and in particular China, for dog meat. Um, so when I talk to people trying to advocate for plant-based diets in China, um, they often get a reaction when they talk about animal welfare of like, oh, it's these... Americans coming in to tell us what we're doing wrong to animals, even though they're factory farming them and abusing them, and they're just coming over here trying to, to say our culture is evil and you know we're eating dogs just because that's what we do while they're doing the same things to, yeah, pigs and chickens. Um, so, so I think we really need to set up for this moment in the movement when we're broadening our horizons to the entire globe. Um, and actually in the book, I have an entire chapter on broadening horizons, both with, with demographics, so, so going beyond the kind of white female, young, liberal, wealthy stereotype that uh, plant-based foods currently have, and then also uh, going to, to an uh, international movement. And that's why I'm very excited to, to be both here in Australia and then also going to East Asia in the next few weeks. Um, like I said, uh, you're going to be ramping up to a really huge reduction in cognitive dissonance here. You'll be getting a huge feedback cycle. So um, oftentimes when you talk about this food technology with, with really hardcore established vegans, they'll say, oh, why don't we just, uh, or, or sorry, they'll say, oh, we can't do that because we really need to get people to change their minds morally. We really want them to adopt animal rights ideology. Um, and it might turn out that, in fact, the best way to do that is to change what people are eating. Because you get that feedback from behavior change to attitude change of no longer eating those animals three times a day. And that will be really important at this stage for, for snowballing the movement. Um, and it will continue being important through, through 2100. So this stage you'll see full globalization. Um, this isn't as dangerous as, as the previous stage because this is a lot of um, poor countries who are going to be ascending uh, out of poverty at this, this time. And we'll have seen the terrible things that have happened in, in uh, Western countries due to factory farming and will 
we'll kind of see the more sustainable production methods and we'll want to switch to them. Uh, but I think this is around the time we'll see, you know, sub-Saharan Africa make a switch. Right now, you know, they're, they're certainly starting to adopt factory farming and, and China and India certainly have. Uh, but a lot of people are still, you know, using animals as a source of, of savings. You know, they're, they're eating grass. They're an asset that they can keep around for, you know, a period of years. Um, and I don't think that, I mean, certainly it's not the priority of us as a movement to be uh, getting rid of that. And I don't think it's, a lot of it's going to go away until this later stage of the movement when you have, you know, at scale clean meat technology or kind of a, a broad movement uh, that can help the, the entire world get on board. You'll also see mainstream anti-speciesism. So I talked about the, the radical mainstream discussions you'll see around 2050. At this stage, you'll be getting actual uh, policies implemented, like legal personhood for, let's say, great apes, um, or bans on the exploitation of animals, not just for uh, agriculture, but also for you know, cosmetic testing, for biomedical research, for uh, animals used in circuses and entertainment. You know, that could actually happen a whole lot sooner. You're already starting to see a lot of progress for these charismatic animals like elephants and tigers who people really don't want to be, uh, see being abused. You'll see celebration and sanctuaries at this stage. So, you know, if you've been an advocate for, for the past, you know, 50 years or more um, and have been working hard on these issues or if, if you know, your family or your uh, mentors have, um, once you get to this stage, you can, you can take a break. Um, you, can, you can celebrate, you can uh, enjoy the huge progress that's been made. We'll start to see a lot more uh, use of sanctuaries. So we'll see farmed animals as really ambassadors of their species. Um, has anyone seen the mockumentary Carnage? So yeah, Carnage is, I think, said in 2067 or something like that. Um, but it's imagining uh, the UK looking back on their meat-eating past. And you have these you know, support groups like Alcoholics Anonymous for people who you know, used to eat animals and are feeling so guilt-ridden about it. Again, because uh, that, what that mockumentary does really well is, is understands the interaction of, of behavior and attitudes and, and how they move together. Um, so at this stage, we'll be wanting to take care of the farmed animals who are left. Um, we won't have that many. You know, for the most part, we just won't be breeding farmed animals into existence anymore. You know, most of them are, are, are being born through artificial insemination. Most of them, like I said, are really bred to suffer through things like you know, laying 300 eggs a year. So the ones we take care of, we might want them to be you know, on hormonal implants. Uh, it's really tricky when it comes to chickens raised for meat. So they have a real insatiable hunger. I have a friend in New York who has one who just, just wants to eat everything in sight. And, and she's honestly, I think, pretty unhappy a lot of the time because... Um, she, she, she wants to eat so much more than uh, they want her to because, of course, that would lead to really bad health outcomes if she were you know, building so much muscle and fat that she were collapsing under her, her own weight like many uh, chickens raised for meat do. Um, but we'll still be taking care of some animals. Uh, maybe we'll have you know, heritage breeds of chickens, you know, the ones that were used in the earlier 1900s, uh, very few of which are still around even on so-called humane farms. Um, but we'll start to see some of them taken care of and seen as ambassadors. So um, these are my two chickens. Like I said, um, when I think about this outcome in the movement, I think about um, where, where they would be or what they'd be thinking. Uh, I mean, maybe they're, they're not really appreciating the broad, broad scope of things, but certainly when they were rescued in California and uh, living at a sanctuary there, uh, they, were, they were very grateful. Um, you know, they, they went through some pretty intense trauma on a factory farm and were... Um, uh, very hesitant to, you know, get to know humans again, for example, and, and start to get to the point where they'd, you know, come sit next to us like a, you know, cat or dog automatically kind of will with humans. Um, for the last part of the presentation, I want to go through a bit of what happens after the end of animal farming. Uh, so what are the next frontiers of, you know, humanity's 
expanding moral circle. Um, you know, when I think about um, what we're building as a movement, and I think about what previous movements have built for us, I want us to be extending the scope of moral concern to beings like future beings. So with climate change, we think about our grandchildren. Uh, but in fact, if humanity ex expands to the stars, we could have even more be beings come into existence. And we could be doing a lot right today to affect uh, their well-being, both positively and negatively. And I think that could be kind of what we see future social movements focused on. Uh, bugs, so uh, those, those kind of itty-bitty creatures we see crawling around with us, like insects and worms. Right now, we don't think too much of them. Maybe the, the kindest among us you know, avoids swatting flies or things like that. Um, but really, as, as we think of uh, what, previous, uh, sorry, what future advocates will think of, uh, this could be the next frontier. So it's kind of like if you were to bring up animal rights in the 1700s or the 1800s, people, it was laughable. Nobody thought that you would extend moral scope all the way to, to non-human species. And today, you know, even though it seems kind of silly to maybe have a moral movement against eating insects, um, that could be the wave of the future, and, and we should be open-minded to this sort of thing. Um, additionally, wild animals. So the, one of the big reasons from an effective altruism standpoint I'm so focused on farmed animals is that they're over 99% of domestic animals, and, and they really dwarf all other populations. Um, but similarly, the number of wild animals out there uh, dwarfs the number of domestic animals uh, we, we have as humans. Um, so if we're extending our scope of moral concern to them, uh, that could lead to a lot of really weird implications. So for example, um, in, in Africa, some of the animals have been suffering from uh, droughts, of course. Um, you know, they die of thirst. Uh, they really endure pretty horrific deaths. And maybe we need to be, go out, uh, be going out there, like some people already are in Africa, uh, to, to, to feed, the, or, sorry, to, to give those animals water. Um, there's a guy who's bringing out kind of tankers of, of, of water to these thirsty animals and, and alleviating a lot of suffering. And, and he could be really a moral pioneer. Uh, finally, artificial sentience. If we really want to stretch our imagination, and think about what we could do at the galactic level, you know, as advents in artificial intelligence are helping us create, you know, smarter and smarter beings, they could also help us create beings with, you know, emotionally complex and rich lives who might deserve our moral concern. And because these beings can kind of be copy and pasted like computer programs, um, we could create really, really factory farming of sorts um, on, on an astronomical scale. And that's pretty dangerous to think about. Maybe we should be taking action today uh, to, to, um, set precedent for, for, for thinking about their well-being. Um, so I really hope that, that as advocates for, for farmed animals and people who want a, a better food system, we should both keep an eye to the past, learning from social movements, thinking about the foundation that they've laid for us, and then also thinking about the foundation we're laying today uh, for future advocates who will follow in our footsteps. Thank you. You're tuned to Freedom of Species on 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. And you've just been listening to JC Reese of the Sentience Institute talk about how he expects humanity will phase out animal farming. If you want to know more, buy his book, The End of Animal Farming. That's it for this week. You can contact us on info at freedomofspecies.org and you can follow us on Facebook and on Twitter. See you next week. Hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name's Paul. I, this is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great, and really healthy and nutritious. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter. 
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.